0: hello and welcome back to another episode of black lives texas a podcast from the institute for urban policy research and analysis also known as iubra i'm your host ricardo low
1: and i'm your other host tracy low as many people may have seen on the news or if you lived in texas you experienced firsthand winter storm Uri which caused widespread power outages and led to the loss of hundreds of lives.
0: The power outages, which were predicted to be on a rolling basis, were anything but rolling, with some people going days without power. Even to this day, we are recording in June, and some residents of Texas are still suffering from issues created by the winter storm.
1: With the Texas legislative session coming to a close, only a few bills were passed along to the governor's desk that directly addressed aid to communities who are in the most need after the storm. And regulations were only passed that cover extreme weatherization regulation for electricity providers. Similar regulations were not passed widely for gas providers.
0: So we wanted to sit down and talk to a few members of the Central Texas community to discuss what could have been done, what can still be done, and how the community came together to support one another.
1: When the unexpected hits, Neighbors and community members often turn to each other for help. We will first hear from Austin City Council member Greg Cassar, and he told us about what he saw happening during and after the storm.
2: I mean, the whole thing was such a blur and so devastating, uh, and it felt like it was forever. I mean, I think that there were many nights where uh, I and some other members of the City Council were probably running on two and three hours of sleep because. It felt like it was just, it was really just this chain this reaction of disaster after disaster, right? First, folks were out of power and it was a, unclear when it was going to come back. And we weren't being told whether it was really going to come back or not. And that's what, where everybody was. And my, a bunch of my staff was losing their power. Um, and then, you know, then we had the water going out and the, and the roads getting frozen. But those disasters. Um, that sort of impacted everyone where we were getting the most terrifying phone calls and the most terrifying stories were of the folks that were already in a vulnerable situation. Um, and then these uh, you know, the roads are being frozen over and people not having food or not having water, layering on top of the issues people were already facing is what made things really deadly. So we were hearing from, and I was on the phone with, uh, with constituents who were on breathing machines. Uh, and and who were medically vulnerable and so couldn't get out in the cold. So they couldn't go get to somebody else's house who had power. They had to stay in their own house. So I was talking to a family where they were trying to make sure that his breathing equipment could stay on being run through the car. And we were trying to figure out how to make sure that they had enough gasoline uh, for their car so that he could still breathe and not uh, go outside and get pneumonia. You know, there were people who... Um, you know we're on dialysis, and dialysis clinics had closed. I was talking to a, a friend who was a medic about um, someone who committed suicide during the storm, and then their family couldn't get an ambulance, couldn't figure out how what it was that they were going to do with their loved one's uh, now deceased body. I mean, these things were just so so devastating and hard during the storm, and then as we've talked about Tracy, the then they were all. This continued disaster that is still affecting many people to this day, months later, while so many other people have moved on. Uh, people whose water pipes burst and were getting flooded in their out of their apartment, and now that they're back, there's mold uh, and and damage throughout their apartment, and their landlord won't fix it. People who didn't have water for weeks, and usually those were, you know, our black and brown Austinites uh, or working class Austinites who. We're still sort of, you know, being in a disaster. Who had less political power, um, and while everybody else was ready to talk about the next thing, you know, had been hit by COVID, had already been hit by housing insecurity in the city, and then we're living in these sort of horrible conditions without much help. So it it really um, was so so I mean so devastating in very specific ways. But then on top of that, I think we should also recognize and talk about how like a lot you know, while a lot of people died and a lot of people are still suffering from it, there were it, there was so much um, community support for one another that really is what pulled folks through and made it so that hundreds more people didn't die and made it so that a lot of folks were able to make it through, not necessarily because we had government systems ready to help, but because people came in and helped one another.
1: Yeah, and that community piece is important. I, I want to talk more about that because often communities are the people that step in to specifically help black and brown communities, but they don't have the resources. So can you talk to me about the cities in terms of what they were able to do to help and then how they have helped these community organizations to support who are doing kind of the grassroots work. Can you talk about what that looked like if during, this, that, during that particular period and then also how it kind of continues even to this day?
2: Yeah, and, and I have had a lot of critiques about the city's response. But there, I, I think it is important to note that there were some really you know, heroic frontline city employees that did incredible things. Right? I mean, we had uh, a historic freeze never before seen in the state of mm-hmm. Texas uh, within anybody's memory. And you had um, a lot of frontline working class public employees, including a lot of our uh, employees of color out there in the ice up on power lines getting the power back on. Uh, and there were some folks yelling at them um, as if it was their fault somehow. And they still were out there at three and four in the morning, you know, and zero degree temperatures fixing the power lines or reconnecting water lines to a hospital. Um, and so, so the, there was really important public response that was heroic. But part of the issue is it's still not enough compared to the scale of the disaster that we faced, right? I mean, the state government and historically city government, there's been some level of austerity of saying we need less public investment. And so, you know, a lot of things that were starting to get stood up by the city to support each other really required community support. So we like opened up a bunch of the schools to be warming centers, places people could go to get water and food, but there weren't enough city employees or any state folks coming in to help to bring the water and food there or to make sure that there were blankets. Um, And so, We just sort of put on activated online. Hey, this school up the street from you is a warming center. Send people there if they need help. But also we don't have enough blankets. And we were just that signaling that out instead of, um, you know, wanting to hide the fact that there was a problem. We just told people that that was the issue. And people stepped up. I mean, there were a lot of folks who trudged through the snow, sometimes leaving their own house that didn't have power and said, hey, I've got a couple extra spare blankets because there's only two of us in the house. The kids have left. So we're bringing their blankets and just dropping them off at the school, dropping them off at Barrington Elementary, dropping them off at Riley Elementary um, for people who needed it. And the city wasn't it, you know, wasn't there to inventory how many there were. We didn't have a stockpile of that stuff. Um, but we just put out there that we didn't have it and the community filled in. And that really was important. So it shows a gap that we have um, in our sort of resiliency and our ability to protect people in these disasters but it also shows the real assets we have in the community of people who are ready to step up and help.
0: Some of the places that really stepped up to meet community needs, especially in the Black community, were churches. We spoke with Dr. Brandon Jones, who is a member of the Greater Mount Zion Church in Austin. He also works in residential life for UT Austin.
3: I attend uh, Greater Mount Zion Church uh, here in Austin. I also work here at UT uh, and involved in a bunch of other um, initiatives and efforts here in the city. And so I I often have opportunity to interact with people who live uh, in the East Austin area and in South Austin. And I know that um, the the experiences in Austin vary greatly, but for the most part, um, there was one common factor and that was that black and brown folks were definitely uh, disproportionately affected uh, down here, especially those who weren't connected to a um, certain municipality grid like a hospital or something like that where the power needed to be on. Uh, there's, you know, our, our pastor uh, went out a couple of weeks after things kind of died down and there's an apartment complex uh, over in East Austin that was still without, um, without, you know, uh, gas. And, you know, the temperatures hadn't risen that significantly at that point. And so people uh, were struggling to, you know, heat their water, make their meals. And um, it just was a, it was a, it, was, it became a slumlord kind of issue, uh, really and truthfully. And so my pastor, uh, Galen Clark, uh, went over with some other pastors and not only prayed over the community, but distributed food uh, and went to just talk to the residents to see if there were ways that they could help. But by and large, uh, black and brown folks were definitely disproportionately affected. In the Austin area, and that raised a lot of concerns and issues because uh, people are exper- we're experiencing, you know, the inability to take care of themselves. And we've already had other we already had COVID going on, and in, in the other instance, you had people doing remote instruction. So your kids were home. You're already dealing with a pandemic, and then you deal with the fact that we were woefully unprepared as an area, and not just Central Texas, but as a state for uh, this ice storm. People at Austin had a range of uh, experiences, but majority, a lot of people, uh, those that had means and those that had less uh, were all on equal footing in terms of suffering in more ways than one. But I would just say that disproportionately, it was black and brown folks that suffered more.
1: We also had a chance to sit down with Kia Collier, an investigative reporter for ProPublica and the Texas Tribune. She wrote a very comprehensive article about the power grid failures. If you want to read her work about the storm, a link is in the show notes.
0: Kia told us about what she felt were some of the historical causes for these infrastructure failures, specifically in lower income communities. You will also hear from Dr. Charles Jackson, a research scientist for the UT Austin Institute for Geophysics.
4: Um, Texas, you know, that's right now I'm working on a story where we're looking into just kind of various um forces that have shaped the, you know, the power market. And one thing that has come up that kind of got, it got some amount of coverage when it happened, but not not a whole lot. And that is the legislature in 2013 voted to end a program that helped um, lower income people pay their power bills. Um, and it was this massive, it was like almost a billion dollars in this fund, and they voted to dissolve the funds and use the money for other things, you know, and they had been using it to, um, to balance the budget rather than um, distributing it, like using it already. So it was like, they already weren't distributing that money, you know? Um, But there's been, yeah, there's a, a ton of things like that, that have, um, you know, where policymakers could, could um, help address those inequities and they they haven't, or they've, um, they've gone, you know, they've backpedaled.
5: The heat is actually, it, it, there's a robust kind of prediction that the number of days above hundred degrees will like triple by the end of the century. And, and that is, uh, amazing. Cause there's already, it's like, uh, like 40 days. <laughs> I don't know, like a really hot summer. is like, it's 40 yeah. days right? I can't imagine tripling that number, but, uh, it, it, anyway, it, it's, it's, um the the way heat is uh, also if you, I've, I've seen this uh, where they look at in a city, where does it get hot? and And it, it actually maps out uh, in this one map I saw recently was was that in in areas that were redlined. And so this is areas that where um, um, uh, communities of minorities were uh, basically allowed to go and excluded, uh, let's see, I mean, minorities were excluded from a a lot of areas, and those were the cooler places, and that even though the heat was everywhere more uniform, because of the way the buildings were built, uh, the way heat flowed in and out, and and basically the heat was accumulating basically in in these uh, less desirably built neighborhoods. It's and all it was, co- it's it was,
4: all concrete, right? It's there's no green mm-hmm. space, so it's just right,
5: exactly yeah. and and how and, and so that's where uh, all these decisions kind of pile up on each other uh, to make your exposure to uh, environmental factors much much greater. And and just seeing that heat map and how it was neighborhood by neighborhood that 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 uniform heating, but it it it, it really focused in these areas. I thought that was remarkable uh, how that worked.
1: As far as infrastructure goes, we, like many people, were wondering how we got here as a state. We saw other states around us having similar weather, but with less devastation. What were some of the things that combined to make something like Winter Storm URI so impactful?
0: Dr. Jackson, Kia, and Caitlin Smith, who works in the energy sector, provided some insight for us.
1: I will
4: note first that I think... We won't know exactly what happened for a pretty long time. But we do have from, you know, um, numbers on, um, you know, like natural gas generation, you know, what types of power, um, you know, fuel were performing or not performing. Um, We do know that natural gas was a really huge part of this. And, you know, there have been past storms. 2011 is one that people talk about a lot. It was kind of the last pretty similar event to this one. Um, And federal agencies investigated after that. And that event, fuel supply was not as much of an issue. It really was more about, it was an issue, but it wasn't as much of an issue as it was this year. Um, So it was more about power plants freezing and having malfunctions due to extreme cold. Um, And there were, of course, um, recommendations for weatherization and all this stuff that were not, you know, implemented um, at all or as as well as they could have been, I guess. Um, And so this time you had and again, we don't know for sure, but it was a spectacular failure of the natural gas system. That's how, you know, both the producers and those, you know, delivering the natural gas to the, to the power plants. And it's kind of a new, you know, a newish ish phenomenon or like, I mean, it's not new, but it's, Texas is very reliant on natural gas. And that's different than it was, you know, decade, two decades ago. Um, and so, But there's this disconnect because power generators don't have this pile of coal. I mean, you know, when they're a coal fired power plant, they have a literal physical thing that they burn, you know, that's sitting there. They have a pile of coal that they can burn. They have absolute control over um, the fuel source. And with natural gas, they depend. They have very little reserves and they depend on pretty much a constant flow of natural gas from um, like the oil and gas fields in West Texas and other places. Um, and the state agency that oversees pipelines and natural gas production, the Railroad Commission, I th- from everything I've seen and read, um, I think has done a worse job <laughs> than PUC um, of requiring industry to weatherize. I don't think they ever did anything at all to require um, the natural gas industry to to shore up their infrastructure from, you know, um, from cold weather. Um, so I I think that will be a really big, really big factor that we'll, that we'll see. Um, but it's such a complicated system, you know, so it'll be, um, but I I mean, a lot of the same generating units failed and whether that's because of, you know, they didn't get enough natural gas, or because they froze, like, we'll just kind of have to have to find out. And there's kind of the, um, it's important to keep in mind a sort of, I don't know, catch 22 chicken and egg sort of thing. But, you know, natural gas fired power plants obviously depend on natural gas, but natural gas production and processing requires electricity. So it's like, what, um that's why you saw, you know, the natural gas producers during these recent hearings at the Texas Capitol. Um, they pointed fingers at each other and they said, no, this was the power plants freezing. And it was like, no, it was natural gas not doing what they should have done to get us natural gas. And so um, it was it made it very ripe for for finger pointing, which would have happened anyway. <laughs> but um, it made it a little more effective. So.
5: Actually, early on, uh, the, I think the governor came out and blamed uh, the wind turbines, and and I was like, uh, it's it like do, do wind turbines freeze up? And I was like, like how, how is that supposed to work? And so, I, and I um, did some investigation, and I was like, no, well, they have wind turbines in Antarctica and, and other places, and and I guess I learned that, uh, yeah, well, you can weatherize uh, turbines, you can make them uh, so that they can. Um, heat up the blades or something to, to, so they don't accumulate any, uh, there's no accumulation on on those blades and, and, but you just have to have the right type of uh, uh, wind turbines. And so that it wasn't necessarily a fundamental limitation of wind turbines, it's just that they, the ones that are installed in Texas, uh, I guess, for the most part, aren't uh, weatherized.
4: I'll just jump in and say though that um, you know, when ERCOT does its projections for the next year, they put out, um, I, I can never remember what it stands for Their SARA, S-A-R-A report, um, essentially ahead of every season, they project, you know, um, how much power they think there will be and how much demand they think there will be based on weather, um, to kind of simplify it. Um, and they, um, you know, their projections for wind, it's always lower in the winter. Um, there's also power plants that come offline to do maintenance to prepare for the hot summer. Um, so, I mean, when you look at uh, the performance of each fuel type, um, wind was a little, it did underperform slightly. It under Everyone, everything underperformed, but uh, natural gas, performed way worse than those other fuel types. So, um, you know, Governor Abbott went on whatever Fox News and, you know, blamed it on wind turbines. And he he chooses his words very carefully. He's a smart person. He was a judge. And, yes, part of it was wind turbines, but it was nowhere near the main culprit. And he knew that. And um, anyone who pays attention to this issue and looks at the numbers –
1: knows that so i heard the the mention of weatherization of of different um types of energy output and so i'm i'm just kind of wondering and this is for you for charles in terms of like how did we get here and thinking about climate and climate change can you talk a little bit about that um because we had the 2011 storm and we've had some some storms that have kind of built up and kind of indicated that this is happening more but um what did we miss like in terms of the 2021 storm yeah
5: I, mean, I think the interesting climate story of it was was that this was not unprecedented that this happens about every 10 years and that there's a there's a good record of of these types of events and maybe maybe this one is a bit uh more severe than some of the ones that we've experienced but it ne- wasn't necessarily unprecedented and and there was a debate amongst us climate scientists in texas because we put out a an opinion piece, and uh, we were debating like, what's the wording? And, and there was a differences of opinion about um, whether or not this was connected to climate change. There was a number of years ago where um, kind of a cold outbreak happened in the US. And there was some theories put forward about how the jet stream, uh, the meanders in that jet stream uh, might become more likely as, as the Arctic warms. But the, the kind of the recent, that's been investigated Uh, more carefully with more, uh, recent observations and modeling and theory studies, and not everyone is convinced that that is a thing. Uh, so that, let's say, is one idea about how the climate change might affect things we take for granted, right? Where, where the, you know, position is of the cold air that's normally, uh, basically safe up there in the Arctic, uh, that it would somehow escape down to Texas and that the a thing is uh, uh, not new, but uh, I don't necessarily, I'm not convinced by what I've seen that that is associated with climate change. But we don't know, uh, like one of the difficulties with understanding uh, climate in general is cause and effect, that, that the, there's lots of things happening simultaneously and it's kind of like reading a, a, a thermometer in a, in a very noisy environment, like with things are moving around and you're trying to um, uh, determine, uh, just, you know, get a measurement on something. But you can't really do that uh, when there's a lot of noise, uh, wind and other things going on in your environment. So uh, with with climate... We think there's a signal in many things that we can see today, like uh, temperatures and uh, more uh, heavy rainfall events. But when it comes to these cold air outbreaks, that the the science is still out there. We we don't uh, we don't quite know what the connection is.
6: That's int- I find that stuff really fascinating. I know at the the hearings they had a, a climatologist who kind of was explaining it was air from Siberia and how unusual that is to get this far south into to this side of the world. And, you know, they were kind of trying to pin him down and say, well, is this unprecedented? Is it un- unique? And he was basically like, yes, but I can't tell you it's not going to happen again next year or the next year. Right. It, mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing I would add earlier, um, it does seem like it was much colder for longer, so I think it's aside from all the supply issues, we just had so much more demand than we have ever seen or or have ever even heard of. Um, we're obviously maybe not obviously, we're what we call a, a summer peaking system because it gets a hundred and whatever degrees here. And you know we, as as Kia was saying, we prepare our plants to be able to run all summer. So we're probably summarized and we're we're used to doing that. Um, but the peak that we would have hit in the winter would have been higher than our like all-time summer peak if we had the generation to meet it. And I think that goes into the gas coordination part of it too, right? Cause we've ju- just never had, we hear about the people moving to Austin and to Texas every day. We've never had this many people with this cold of weather and there's a mix of gas and electricity heat and so that we've just never seen anything close to that.
5: So th- there's a little bit of a connection here to, let's say, Harvey insofar as Harvey was unusual, not because the hurricane strength was that much different than other hurricanes, but it just parked right on Houston and it stayed there for a long, long time. And, and so uh, with this one, th- there was actually two storms back to back and and so the duration is in some sense was longer than a typical storm simply because it, it, it was there's was like two ones that were just lined up and and affected us uh, in, for a protracted length of time so um, uh, so with in, in thinking about the connection between Harvey and climate, it comes down to well, do we expect storms to travel more slowly with climate change? And and I don't think we know we have the answer uh, to that. Uh, but it's more than uh, a simple question. It has to do with the confluence of two basically factors that that are um, uh, make something doubly worse. But that in in some sense that's what extremes are, right? It's like you have what is normal, and then you have, you know, whatever, uh, uh, an event, and then you have something that, that makes it even worse or longer or something like that. But...
4: Charles, a lot of people have asked me, cause I was, I was an energy reporter when I was like really focused on environment. I actually covered Harvey. I was in Houston during Harvey. Um, and it was, um, quite an experience, but, um, people have asked me, um, about the link between this winter storm and climate change and... I've told them that um, I'm glad to hear you say like the science is unclear, like there's some disagreement about it. Um, but you know we can expect just kind of wackier, more extreme weather with climate change, no matter hot or cold. I mean, is that is that right? Am I lying to yeah, people? It,
0: <laughs> yeah.
5: <laughs> I mean. Uh i mean it is it is we we should expect uh climate weirding which is a a catherine hayhoe uh professor at texas tech she she, uh, she likes that term rather than simply focusing on warming that that it's uh that everything is out of the norm and and so um uh so we should expect uh you know unusual stuff to be happening in all seasons not just what uh, typically we'd we'd focus on warming.
1: As someone who was on the ground, working with community members during and after the storm, Dr. Brandon Jones had thoughts on what needs to change and how there could be some accountability.
3: So I'm speaking in my capacity as Brandon Jones, citizen and not Brandon, employee of UT. So for me, um, I think that number one, we gotta really assess why we have our own power grid. Like I get that Texas, it's all about you know, being independent and not necessarily wanting to do like everybody else. I get all of that. Um, I don't agree with it, but I, I, I see where that comes from historically. I see where that comes from um, you know, socioeconomically, But at the, or even if you thinking for, at it from a capitalistic st- or capitalism standpoint, sure. But when we look at how unprepared we were for a winter storm I mean, that, you know, one that talks about what we're dealing with, with climate change, because that because Central Texas doesn't get that kind of weather. And so as a result, I get it. We don't have snow trucks. I get it. We don't keep those around. But at the same time, um, losing power the way we did and people losing their lives because we weren't prepared and, and our lack of preparation mainly stemmed from the fact that we want our own system, and we want our own grid. I think that there needs to be more accountability. I think that's a fantastic word for it, and it does. That Some people need to be held accountable for that, because people died. One life lost because of this is too many. And the fact that we lost more than one uh, tells us that we have a problem on our hands. And again, we were dealing with a pandemic at the exact same time. And so we're we were weeks into the Biden administration so, you know, one could say that yeah, we we could look to uh, our nation's leadership to help us with that. But our current president was only in office a couple of weeks at that time, barely at that, because of the struggle with the transition of power. Then, when you think about the previous administration's um, the previous administration's dismissal of a pandemic response team, then we get hit with a pandemic. <laughs> um, so we're kind of see it, it, it's 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 at all levels this this issue this problem is occurring at all levels and change is going to have to occur, occur from the top down and i think that as citizens of this central texas area um, we need to put partisan politics aside and say that you know lives were lost because of this Uh, This shouldn't be about money and Texas pride, or state pride, or state's rights. This needs to be about what's the right thing to do for your citizens. And the basic needs, care of citizens should be an absolute priority. And my hope is that in the days ahead, um, I don't want to just see people resigning. I don't want to just see new commissions being formed to explore what went wrong. We knew that. That's a good start. But we know what went wrong. We were not prepared. I'd like to see a plan because hurricane season is right around the corner for this state. Not only that, flu season is right around the corner and working in higher ed, we have to deal with those things. We still gotta figure out how long these vaccines are gonna last before people need to go and do another round or anything like that. There's so many different things that have to get figured out. But with this storm and this crisis preparation, I would be hoping and praying and expecting that Uh, citizens are holding their city planners and city managers uh, accountable, talking to their mayors and local officials, holding them accountable, and then transitioning that um, to, you know, holding state and federal authorities accountable for these things too.
1: Yeah, and that in terms of communities, communities are often the leaders of what change and preparedness should look like mm-hmm. within their their areas. And so how do you feel that cities could work with with community organizations and grassroots organizations and kind of mm-hmm. just take the lead from them and listen and they can work together to actually, to, to create these preparedness plans that, that work for everyone?
3: Yeah, well, first conduct the needs assessment. See what the actual needs of your people are. And, I, and it, it should start with the people that were the most affected. Uh, because it's one thing to send out a survey and email it and everybody sends back their responses but that's not taking into account the folks that don't respond or the folks that may or may not speak english or all those other different things but actually conducting the needs assessment and going and visiting those areas that were greatly impacted and going in and being out there like some politicians used to do Um, You know, At least in Katrina, you started to see people going out and assessing the damage. After every major hurricane, governors and mayors, they go and assess the damage. I don't know when the damage was actually assessed. I don't know when the mayor of Round Rock walked around to go and do that, or did somebody else do it, if anyone. Um, So it would start with conducting that needs assessment and finding out where those greatest, those areas who were greatly impacted, and those areas that suffered the most, start there and get those citizens feedback and be okay with the passion and the energy and the frustration uh, that they give you and use that and turn it into actual preparation. Because if, there's got to there's be something that emerges in those stories and those narratives that people uh, are going to tell. And if, it's, if you look up and everybody who's talking to you in one particular area is telling you this was their experience, but then you cross the railroad tracks, or you cross 35, or you hit a certain point in Round Rock around a particular area, you'll start to see some common themes. And what you might find is that those in more affluent areas probably didn't have to suffer as much. Uh, those connected to a hospital power grid probably didn't lose power, if any power at all. Um, certain areas, we, you know, ERCOT and all of that was talking about rolling blackouts were going to have to happen, OK. Were people warned when those blackouts would occur? How long they would occur? Uh, And was that put in the language of the people, of the people you're trying to tell that they're gonna experience said blackout? Like there's so many things that would emerge if we just started with what was the damage? What's the need? And then come back and work on actual solutions. Uh, I think that you you start with those grassroots uh, organizers, those folks who are in the community already doing that work anyway. It'd be foolish to come in there and duplicate their work. So sit down and talk to them. Sit down and find out, what did you notice? What did you see? And don't be dismissive of their experience. And then look at the themes. Look at the pattern. If all those stories, the stories are going to show a clear pattern. We do this stuff when we look for criminals. We look for patterns when somebody goes missing. When, we're, when the military goes and hunts terrorist cells and organizations and all of that, they look for patterns in all kinds of different things why are we not doing that when it comes to te- to meeting the basic care needs of our citizens uh, that to me that's where it would start and from there working with the folks who are the boots on the ground to make sure that the citizens trust the work that's getting done because if they not if they don't trust you it, it's all for not anyway uh, so yeah long-winded answer but yeah that's, that's those are my thoughts on that part
0: Councilmember Member Kassar also had thoughts on what the city of Austin is doing to prep for the future, what still needs to be done, and how communities can keep politicians more accountable.
2: Yeah, I, I think that we have to take advantage of the moment now, uh, because pretty soon people start forgetting about it again. You know, it starts becoming this, like, well, let's move on. And then the and then the, news or the pushes about how it's going to cost money um, and how could we be spending this much money on, making sure we have extra water or ac units um that shouldn't be the scandal the scandal should be about why we don't have that stuff to begin with so i think it's really important for us to start pushing on that and moving on that and not just letting ourselves move on um uh, and I, i think that this is this is really the time um because we can see how much we depend on each other right we can really see how everything can fall apart as soon as you don't have running water just a few days without power, that it all, that, that it's, this isn't some every person for themselves. Everybody can hold it down. Society, you know, if we don't invest in public infrastructure and public places and public goods, then we start having hundreds of people die. You know, a news report just came out last night that the death count from this storm is probably three to four times higher, if not even higher than that, than what the cities and states have estimated. Mm. Once you go back and look at how many people died in that week and the week afterwards, compared to how many just were dying in the normal in normal times, and then compare that to in the COVID era, there's this big spike in Texas that can only be explained by this storm. So you're talking about hundreds more people than the state has reported most likely died because we have not invested in each other um, the way that we should.
1: Yeah, and so in terms of things that community members can do, are people that are just interested in, in getting engaged in helping to address these issues? What are is some call to actions that you have? Um, I think
2: it's really important. At the at bottom line, so much of what where, why we are where we are is um, a political imbalance of power. And I think it is just so important for folks to find community organizations that represent working people that represent their coworkers, that represent communities of color, uh, and and demand different in the city and in the state. I mean, it's gonna take a really it's gonna take a really significant amount of work, but it doesn't have to take forever for us to start tilting the balance of power towards the people that need it the most. I mean, this state legislative session, where we've gone through these two dueling disasters, they have focused so much on what seems to be Discriminate against trans kids, letting everybody carry a gun no matter what, and banning abortion care, those seem to be like what they decided to do. The number of times they brought up the pandemic or the freeze is like nothing, or that people have been economically hurting is like nothing. And um, if the people in our big cities uh, and surrounding areas really started to come together to talk about what's actually affecting them, which is overwhelmingly working class folks in communities of color and not letting places like the Capitol just move on and frankly, not letting the city hall move on either. um, Then I think things would be really different. So we would spend less time, you know, on the just identifying that all of these other horrible things that they're up to are really diversion tactics away from the core problem of underinvestment in our communities um, and sort of just letting everybody just suffer the consequences. Uh, it, it should always almost always come back to that right it's not of course discrimination against trans children is just more morally abhorrent uh, and should be you know denounced in and of itself but then the fact that that clearly also is just a diversion tactic from doing your job um it's it's totally unacceptable and when you think of texas there are the vast majority of people that's not what they're interested in so we have to close that gap, and until we close that gap, we're going to keep on, we're going to, we're going to keep on being on the track that we're on. Now, locally, there's still important, like sort of community building work to do, knowing who your neighbors are, who your coworkers are, and how you're going to support each other. Um, that's really critical, and we shouldn't just uh, leave it all to the city or state to to fix because we can't all wait on that. But we have to be able to do both. And I think people really took care of each other in their communities. We have to be. Get, you know, get even better at that while recognizing that this is, in the end, this is a political problem.
1: There was and still is a lot to talk about in relation to the winter storm. More and more extreme weather looks to be trending for Texas and places around the world. We've placed some links in the show notes about what was done this legislative session at the Texas Capitol there is still a pending special session that might pass more bills to provide relief for families that were impacted by the storm.
0: Do you want to share your winter storm story? What do you think should be done to prevent future power issues in Texas? Please email us your voice memos or messages at BlackLivesTexasPodcast at gmail.com.
1: Black Lives Texas is a project by IUPRA at UT Austin. It is produced and hosted by me, Tracy Lowe, and Ricardo Lowe. And it's produced and edited by Mariah Gossett. Music by Upper Reality.
0: All right, so we will be back in two weeks to return to our conversations around the black middle class and education. Until next time, hasta la próxima semana. One love.